Welcome to the BOK Economics Podcast, brought to you by BOK Capital Management. BOK Capital Management is a 100% Black-owned, student-run hedge fund that focuses on exposing students to the field of active investment management. The purpose of the podcast is to enrich listeners from around the globe by highlighting the importance of economics. Economics provides a deeper insight into the events that are currently taking place in the world and helps us understand the decisions that have been made and their potential impacts. I think economics is important because it's one of the most overlooked social sciences that it affects every aspect of our daily lives. I believe that economics is important because of the insight that you can gain into consumer behavior. Economics allows you to contextualize the world. BOK Economics. 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 In my years after the PhD, I moved into behavioral slash experimental economics, basically studying human behavior with empirical approaches and in particular also experimental controlled approaches uh, to understand the motives of human behavior. And currently I'm working as a professor for experimental behavioral economics at the University of Cologne in Germany and University of Innsbruck in Austria. And I'm also a director of a Max Planck Institute uh, in Germany, in Bonn. Yes, quite the resume there. And most of the time, authors, they have a reason why they write a book. It means something deep down to them. What was your reasoning for writing the book that you wrote? Oh, well, uh, it started by a coincidence, I should say. I've, I've been invited five, six years ago by uh, a Federal Chamber of Commerce in Austria to write a monthly column for them. Uh, and actually, that should be about something related to business. And uh, they knew that I'm a behavioral economist. And so they thought it might be interesting to write about things like, does it matter how tall you are for your earnings? Does it matter whether companies have an employee referral program? Uh, does it matter for those who they hire, as well as for those who are already in the company? And so I started writing this. And um, after three or four years, actually, I had the idea I could, I could make a book out of those small uh, columns, actually. And so I did. It was first published in German and immediately Wiley Publishers bought it uh, for the world, basically for the non-German speaking area. This is how it is. And uh, they were very quick in bringing it out and it uh, came out in January this year. I'm very happy about it. Yeah, and it's a wonderful read. It has a lot of research and insights on there, things that you normally don't think about in a business environment. And we're definitely going to touch on some of the interesting findings that I found. Um, You mentioned just one particular about the height that is uh, in one of your earlier chapters in the book. But before we do, I just want to know, what would you say is your most interesting finding that you have found studying behavioral economics? Well, that's a good question, actually. The, uh, I would say that I'm most surprised by the fact that human behavior around the globe is very, very similar, mm. which is good news in a sense, because we are human. So all of our species react very similarly to species. There might be some tiny cultural differences, but I believe behavioral economics has done work around the globe from New Zealand to Alaska and everything in between from north to south and east to west. And and humans just on a global scale have a desire for fairness, for efficiency also, which means also, I mean, of course, they do care for themselves, but not only for themselves. And uh, they have they have a request for trust, for all of those soft things that, that matter so much for human life. And they do matter naturally also uh, for our professional life. And well, that, I try to condense it now. I think that that's something which I find really striking after 25 years in the business. 
Awesome. Something that you mentioned was human behavior, no matter what part of the world you're on, is somewhat similar. And I would wonder, how is the health of the German economy? Because you're located in Germany. We are um, on the other side of the globe. We're here in the States. And one of the things that just happened today was the employment report. We got the jobs data. I just want to know, for the people that are not there in Europe, what is the German economy looking like right now? Well, it well in principle, it's going strong on the labor market, much stronger than uh, one would have expected up after the pandemic and after the start of the uh, Russian invasion in, in, in Ukraine. Uh, because ultimately, it's it's a matter of fact that there are many, many more open positions than people looking for jobs, and this this is a very good sign. Uh, the economy does struggle with the high energy prices naturally. Does struggle with uh, logistics about because. Uh, I'd say the global trade routes have been impeded over the past few years considerably, which makes it more difficult to kind of have, have your supplies that you need uh, in time just where the, where you need them. And th this is something which not only Germany struggles, but but it's uh, other than the energy crisis, I believe Germany is doing relatively well still, even though the groceries are very modest, let me be clear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Would you say that the work from home environment is similar to how it is over here in the U.S.? Do you guys have a pretty prevalent work from home environment, too? Uh, yes and no. Uh, in a sense, I believe it's more prevalent in the U.S. in general still, but uh, the pandemic has, has, has done a big, big push in, in increasing this up to levels which have never been seen before in, in all over Europe, actually. And uh, this is not going to be turned back uh, in the sense that uh, nowadays, uh, given the shortage of labor supply, actually, uh, those young people uh, looking for jobs and asking for jobs are really in a privileged position to say, look, I'm not coming if I can't work at least two days from home a week. And that seems to be the new normal in a sense. Two to three days at home, that's something which most people are looking for. Right, right. Even my offer that I had just accepted, it gave me the opportunity to work two or three days at home if I wanted to. And one of the things that I took away from chapter three in your book, um, you talk about working from home and how it can increase productivity, but it can also hinder your chances to get a promotion. So yeah. it's almost like a trade off. Do you see like any long term negative consequences from working at home? In the long run? Well, actually, the research basically shows that in many areas like uh, sales, for instance, uh, working from home is really a problem for your career. Mm -hmm. And the explanation, uh, I'm getting to your future, uh, long-term question. The explanation is pretty simple because it's about it's about being present, being being networked also in, in, in the company. And if you're more time at home or almost most of the time at home, it's much more difficult to really demonstrate all your skills in being able to lead the group on your own. And this is important for any kind of promotion so you're saying what well, what is the long-term trade-off is there a long-term trade-off in the long term i believe not but the challenge is actually that companies need to find new ways of getting and keeping very good relations to people who work mainly from home and this is something which in my opinion still does not work properly because basically it's out of sight out of mind which nowadays often happens and this needs to be changed in by having regular formats where you really need by uh, meet by by regular meetings also in person in the companies in order to really kind of have the personal feel and the personal network to those people who are mainly at home. And then I don't believe it's going to be a, a trade-off in the long run. 
Okay, would you say that maybe just the overall thought process and mindset of the younger generation is going to spark employers maybe in the long run to opt in to more work from home or maybe even completely 100% remote opportunities? Because it seems like people in my generation, they more so want to have more time at home. They like that environment. They don't like traveling to wherever their place of business is. Do you think that employers are going to have to almost compensate to get some type of employees or get the right type of workers if that's what they're trying to do? Yes, yes, I believe given given the current really search for qualified people, uh, companies will have to compromise. We'll offer this much more than they do want to offer. I'm, I'm pretty sure about that. Um, and, and that means make the best out of it. That means, as I was saying, try to find good formats where you keep good links with those people. Don't uh, kind of set them back in their promotion careers. Uh, uh, of course, also many things can be done from home. And, and there, there's clear evidence. People working from home are often much happier because kind of their time management becomes more flexible. They say to save so much time by, by not being forced to commute uh, stuck in traffic jams and things like that. Even for the environment, it's actually good. Also, companies can promote this as an as as a goal that they want to increase home office time uh, in order to kind of help the environment. Also, there are many. It's a win-win situation ultimately, but companies need to adjust certainly. Yeah, and I would think that the people that may not get what they want in terms of a work from home and work in office type split, they would eventually end up going off and pursuing different yeah. opportunities. And that was yeah. really big in 2022. Um, job hoppers were seeing 30% pay bumps and 20% pay bumps when they switched jobs, even though these were a little bit, um, I would say, lower salary based jobs, they were switching and getting more increases. And one of the things your book also mentions is the negative consequences that comes with job hopping. So I know there can be some pros, there can be some cons, but if you would give any advice to the people who may think that they're trying to leverage their employer by potentially hopping, what would you give them? What, what advice would you say there? Yeah, don't hop too early. That that That's the main thing. And don't feel forced to hop. When, when I... When I teach introductory classes with five, six, seven hundred people, uh, something which is potentially in the US you cannot imagine, but that's the usual in, in, in continental Europe. Uh, and talking to, to young students, uh, first, second year students, basically they just give me the impression they feel forced to, when they have finished their education, to move around every two or three years into new jobs to demonstrate to the labor market that they are super flexible. So and and the research shown in the book basically shows if you do this, you're perceived as someone who might be well qualified, yes, but someone who is not willing to pay and show loyalty towards the employer because you just hop off whenever things get less more, less exciting, potentially less frictionless when you have more troubles. So you're also perceived as someone who is less able to perform well in teams and solve conflicts. And those soft skills are super important for, for employers. And they are very important also for your career later on, these soft skills. And that's something which indirectly job hopping gives us a bad signal to the employers about yourself if people hop too often, very early on. So the advice is do hop when there's a super great alternative, but don't hop just for the hopping. Right, right. And another thing I want to ask for your advice on, because we do have a younger demographic here and some of, of our listeners will be graduating within the next week or so and going off into a tricky job environment. Even though unemployment is low, you do have a lot of the you know, sexy industries, not hiring and doing hiring freezes. But for those people out there who are entering this challenging market, what type of advice would you give to them? 
in which respect do you mean precisely, if I may ask that? Yeah, when they want to secure a certain gig and they want to make sure that they're going to have some type of stability right when they're launched out of graduation. Yeah. Uh, I mean, first of all, uh, well, literature networks, and that's something which which research shows us very clearly. Uh, more than half of, well, depending a little bit on definition, but about half of the positions are filled by network contacts that you have, even remote ones, which are often called the weak, weak links actually in your network, much more than the strong ones, because those, those networks basically increase the size of the market that you're searching in, which is really important because you get to, you get to know about opportunities which, uh, in a narrow sense, would never have occurred to you, and that broadens the scope of, of the jobs that you might apply for and ultimately get an interview and then get, get, get the contract in. So, so this is one thing. The other thing is <laughs> one practical advice uh, which you can draw from my book is if you're invited for an interview, it's actually it increases your chances if you're later on in the interview sequence because it, it's the last impressions that matter most and in particular the er- very early presentations on are hardly given the perfect grades, the best grades uh, early on because the, the people in the hiring committee usually leave a little bit of room very early on, there might be better candidates to come, and that, that's uh, statistically speaking slightly to the disadvantage of the early uh, candidates in the in, this, in the sequence of interviews. So that that that's this. Uh, okay, sorry. Uh, any any further <laughs> details you want to know? Yeah, one of the questions that I personally have because I've experienced this myself. You also mentioned in chapter eleven a little bit about how. Um, a lot of the applications that are on the internet now are using machine AI and algorithms to almost separate the wheat from the tares. And I know that I've received um, notices that, oh, I'm not accepted for a position within almost you know a day or so. So I know it's not probably another human on the other end of that. But do you have any advice for the workarounds of these algorithms that are looking for specific things? And um, yeah, that's something that I've actually experienced myself. Um, what would you what would you say for that? Oh, this is a tricky question. So the first thing that which I would like to say is the following, that, that uh, employers need to be much more aware of potential pitfalls of algorithms. Uh, there have been clear evidence, there's been clear evidence that they might be biased themselves, like biasing against women, for instance, because, well, statistically speaking, they have more often an interruption of their working career if they, for instance, can get the child uh, naturally. Uh, so this is, this is and, and if you train algorithms by kind of CVs of a particular type, then you kind of, uh, well, you build in an a, a discriminatory element. So that's the first advice to the employers, actually. To the employees, it's 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 more, it's a bit of a tricky question because basically you should show what you have and you should show it sincerely. Of course, you should. And that's something which I do tell my young people in the academic sphere. You should, uh, I mean, many people apply for 50 jobs, say, in, in, the, in the hiring season. And, and many just use one, one motivation letter for all 50 applications. I think that's a big mistake, uh, because you should really tailor it to the company that you really want to work for. Uh, use keywords where you clearly demonstrate that you've considered what this company or organization that you want to apply for is doing, where you see the link specifically to the company uh, and highlight also your diverse background, your experience that you might have, which might be enriching for this company or organization. And that's something which I, much to my surprise, I must say, uh, often do not see in, in kind of standard applications, which are just, well, I mean, if somebody, for instance, who, who applies, let me give you an example, who applies for a postdoc position at the Max Planck Institute in Bonn, where I am, and doesn't drop a single word about why this person would think that the, the Max Planck Institute in Bonn is a good place. 
And I see many of those. I, I'm just not interested in such an application because I want that this person takes some time to think about why he or she wants to come to us. And I believe that's, I mean, ultimately also those algorithms, in, I mean, if they, they check education naturally clear, but also in the motivation letter, which uh, kind of language recognition nowadays, it's so easy to, to find out the buzzwords and the keywords that really show you whether someone is kind of just, just using a generic motivation or just a tailored one. Okay, that's going to be helpful for the future. I thank you for that answer. And before we leave, I want to make sure the audience knows how to connect with you or support your work in any way. So if anybody would like to follow up with you or may be interested in checking out your book, where can they go to find out that information? Well, it, I, probably the easiest thing is just just use a search machine, search engine like Google and type in my name. Uh, it's a German name. Uh, I'm Austrian, uh, actually by birth, but nevertheless, it's a German language. Uh, so if, if, you, if you announce my name, that's sufficient. Use it in the search engine. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter on, on uh, Matt Sutter uh, underscore MPI, uh, which stands for Matthias Sutter at the Max Planck Institute. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn as Matthias Sutter. Uh, very simple. So, so there are many ways of, of connecting to me if someone wants to write emails i usually respond within 24 hours unless i'm sick uh and uh so i'm i'm, I'm easy to reach out that's awesome well now that we have that information we're likely to act on that make sure you guys check out his books which is again behavioral economics for leaders and this was a great podcast i really do thank you mr sutter for coming on and giving some of your insights it means a lot but everybody out there make sure to share this episode with a friend like subscribe and comment and have a great rest of your week Thank you very much, Devin. It was a pleasure talking to you. German name, uh, I'm Austrian, uh, actually by birth, but nevertheless, it's a German language. Uh, so if, if, you, if you announce my name, that's sufficient. Use it in the search engine. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter on, on uh, Matt Sutter uh, underscore MPI, uh, which stands for Matthias Sutter at the Max Planck Institute. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn as Matthias Sutter. Uh, very simple. So, so there are many ways of, of connecting to me. If someone wants to write emails, I usually respond within 24 hours, unless I'm sick. Uh, and uh, so I'm, I'm I'm easy to reach out. That's awesome. Well, now that we have that information, we're likely to act on that. Make sure you guys check out his books, which is, again, Behavioral Economics for Leaders. And this was a great podcast. I really do thank you, Mr. Sutter, for coming on and giving some of your insights. It means a lot. But everybody out there, make sure to share this episode with a friend, like, subscribe, and comment, and have a great rest of your week. Thank you very much, Devin. It was a pleasure talking to you.